a dry, barren desert, a very poor country, sparsely populated. The Kalahari Desert occupies over 80% of the landmass of Botswana. But then something happened. They discovered diamonds. And we have some of the richest ores, some of the richest seams of diamonds in the whole world. And everything changed because the diamonds brought in revenue and the country began to develop. Now tonight I've brought you four gems, four diamonds. I suppose the jewelers would call it a four-diamond cluster. And this four-diamond cluster, these gems are more beautiful, more precious, and more enduring than anything any woman has ever worn on her finger. Four diamonds from the Word of God. And they are these. Concerning ourselves and our relationship to Christ. First of all, diamond number one. We are a new creation in Christ. And that's what we read in verse 17. A new creation in Christ. Diamond number two. We have been reconciled by Christ. Verse 18. Diamond number three. We are ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20. And then diamond number four, we are workers together with Christ. Diamond number four, chapter six and verse one. I'll say them again. A new creation in Christ. Reconciled by Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. And workers together with Christ. Now, from verse 14, what I want to bring before you this evening, a little word of ministry before we talk about Botswana, is the motivation for service. I want you to notice in verse 14, Paul speaks of a new power. Look at it now in your Bible, and I'll look at it in mine. He says here, For it is the love of Christ that constraineth us. That couldn't be my love for Christ. That has to be, surely, yes, I believe. That has to be his love for me. The love of Christ, his love for me, constraineth us. The only valid motivation for serving Christ is love. Love to him and love to others. You can preach you can serve, you can live before others, sometimes very sadly, you can do it without love. Love is the only true motivation, the only valid motivation for serving Christ. Anything less devalues our service or renders it useless and in vain. What kind of love was his? It was an eternal love, without beginning and without end. God is love. It's a divine love. It's an unchanging love, no fluctuations. If you were to draw a graph of your love and mine, it would be like this. God's love is 
No variation. It's unchanging. No diminution. No decrease. God is love. He's not just loving. He is love. And Christ, the Son of God, oh, how he loved us. The Son of God, says Paul. Galatians 2 and 20. The Son of God who loved me. And he gave himself for me. Please remember that God does not love anyone less than he loves you. And he doesn't love anyone more than he loves you. And these two things should keep us humble, but also thankful. God doesn't love anybody more than he loves you. Do you think he loves the Apostle Paul more than he loves you? Do you think he loves those martyrs more than he loves you? No, not at all. He cannot. God is love. God's love is eternal. God's love is unchanging. There are no fluctuations. There are no variations. But by the same token, there's no one he loves less than you. For God so loved the world. I hope we believe that. He loves everybody. And if we are his servants, here's another thing I want you to think about. There is nobody that we should not love. There is nobody that we should not love because God loves the world and his love has been poured into us. The love of God is shed abroad in our, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. It's poured into us to flow out of us. So there's no one that a believer should not love because God loves everybody. Now there are people that annoy us, aren't there? And people that maybe we don't like and they irritate us and there's people and they're very evil and there are enemies. Love your enemies, says the Lord Jesus. Love them. Love them. That doesn't mean to say that you condone what they're doing. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he never condones sin, but he loves sinners. Do you remember the woman taken in adultery? A sinner she was. He didn't condone her sin, but he loved her and he forgave her. And so this wonderful love, it, 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 we could go on thinking about divine love, the, unchanging, the eternal, unchanging nature of divine love, the impartial nature, no favorites, no favorites. Now, it's not to say our lives will please God, perhaps like the Apostle Paul's. I doubt that, but God's love, that's the point I want to get away. God's love doesn't change for you. Or for me. The love of Christ, of course, that is that divine love. It was a sacrificial love. It cost him everything. And he was prepared to give everything. To lay down his life for the sheep. To offer himself without spot to God. To pour out his soul unto death. To go under the judgment of God. That's the love of Christ. A personal love. A sacrificial love. So Paul says now, looking again at the verse we read, verse 14, the love of Christ, that love, that love, constrains me. 
He means that it's hemming me in, it's pressing me in, it's leaving me no option for no wiggle room, we might say. His love is pressing me in in service, keeping me straight on the path of service, all because of his love. It's the same word that the Lord Jesus Christ said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. I am straightened. I'm hemmed in till it be accomplished. I'm kept uh, focused because of that love. It's the same word used of Stephen's enemies. They, they stopped their ears, pressing in on their ears. That's the same word. And so we see it as the love of Christ, this new power for service. We can never fully comprehend the love of God. I believe in, in heaven. It will be like an ongoing education. We'll just learn more and more and more and more. And we'll just be wondering. And when you wonder, you worship. It'll just be wonder, worship, wonder, worship, wonder, worship. Amazing. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. We cannot measure the height, the depth, the breadth, the length of that love. Who can tell it out? We feel our weakness when we even speak of that love. So the love of Christ took a grip of the Apostle Paul and it never let him go. Now you in the assembly, and me in the assembly I'm part of, I have to demonstrate that love and I need to let that love motivate me, control me, Guide me, constrain me, focus my life, my service, a new power. Look at verse 15, a new purpose. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them. And rose again, who are you living for? Who are you working for? Is it just for you? Why are you being educated? Who's it for? Is it just for you? Our lives should be poured out as living sacrifices. Wherever we are, whatever we do, that it might be for him. We are doing it for him. And that elevates everything. There's a dear lady at home, and she's washing the dishes. That's a very low, mundane sort of a job. But if she's doing it out of love for him and love for her family, that elevates it as an act of worship. Please don't divide your life into the Sunday life and the other life. The secular and the sacred. Uh-uh. When it's all for him, even these little acts, these little jobs, I might say, that you would do at home, if you're doing it for him, it elevates it as an act of worship, an offering, a sacrifice to God because we do it for him. So I would say again, do not divide your life into the Sunday life, the Lord's Day, the assembly life, and the rest of your life. Your life is one. 
And Christ lays claim to all of it. And he paid the price for you. You are not your own. And I am not my own. And we see that there's a new purpose to give our lives new purpose and meaning that they should not live unto themselves, but unto him. Why? Because he died for them and he rose again. Devotion to Christ, love for Christ, hemming me in. Love for Christ so that I'm pouring out my life for him. And we all struggle with selfishness. That is the root of sin. It's selfishness. We want me first, and then I'll give Christ what's left. No, never. He's given all for us, and we should seek to do our best. We're all learning, and we're all feeling, and we're all stumbling. But he is worthy of the very best. He's worthy of everything who gave himself for us. A new purpose. Notice verse 16, then, a new perspective. You see things differently when you know Christ. Look at verse 16. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. What is he saying here? He says, I have a completely different perspective on life now. I'm not looking at it in a carnal way or in a fleshly way. I have a new way of looking at life. And that's true. When you trust Christ, everything changes. You see life differently. The spiritual takes precedence over the natural. You see, the Apostle Paul, he thought it was just Jesus of Nazareth, but one day he realized, Lord, he's Lord. Lord of my life. And when Christ is Lord of your life, you have a completely different perspective on life. Heaven above is softer blue. Earth below is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. We see everything differently. We see the world differently. The things that motivate the world, we see it differently because we know Christ now. We've been transformed. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we see everything differently. We have a new heart, as it were. We have new desires. Who would want to come to a prayer meeting? Ah, but when Christ is there and you come with your burdens and you come to give thanks, that's why you're there. The world looks on, they scratch their head, they say, those crazy Christians. Who would spend time reading that old book? Oh, but it's different when you trust Christ. And when you know him, this book is a living book. This book reveals Christ to us. We hear his voice in this book. Everything changes. And if nothing has changed, then there's a big question mark over anyone's testimony. If they live just the same. Salvation always brings a change. And it's a new perspective. Verse 17, a new position. In Christ. Epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 1, that's the key phrase, in Christ. Once we were out of Christ, now we're in Christ. It's a place of security. It's a place of safety. He said unto them, I I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. We're in his hand. We're in Christ. Thank God for that. Our new position. New creation in Christ. 
Now, we could say more about that, but as we said, verse 18, reconciled by Christ. We were at enmity with God. We were far from him. But you see what God did? It is God who has moved. Look at it in verse 18. All things are of God. Who hath reconciled us to himself? Let me explain something very quickly about reconciliation. In the world, this is what reconciliation means. You take an enemy this side, and all the bad things he has done. And you take an enemy this side, and you bring them together. You reconcile them. When South Africa became a, dem a democracy and apartheid fell away, they set up a truth and reconciliation committee so that people who had been on this side and had committed atrocities and people who had been on this side and committed wrong and evil deeds, they, they could come together and own up and confess and be reconciled. That's what the world means by reconciliation. But that's not what God, how God works. Let me show you with my two hands. We have moved away from God in our sin. God doesn't move at all. You get it? We have moved away from God in our sin. The separation, our sins and iniquities have separated us. We're enemies of God because of our sins. We have taken ourselves, as it were, at a distance from God. God doesn't move. God's the same. But look, it is God who goes after us to bring us back to himself. Isn't that wonderful? God took the initiative. It wasn't someone, I know that Christ is the mediator, that's a different thought. But in the idea of reconciliation, God has reconciled us unto himself. How has he done that? By Jesus Christ. Please notice verse 18. He has committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Now tell me, wouldn't it be a very strange thing that no one would believe if brethren who can't be reconciled one to, the, to another preach the gospel of reconciliation. Wouldn't that be a strange thing? Who would believe our gospel if brethren who can't reconcile stand up and pretend to preach reconciliation? It would mean nothing. It'd be hypocrisy. So you see, there's a great burden upon us to live according to the message that we proclaim. If it's a message of reconciliation, we can't have two brethren sitting apart in a huff, holding grudges one against the other. Uh -uh. No, no, that will not do. That's hypocrisy. Let us preach with clarity and with sincerity. We have the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, it's called the word of reconciliation. The gospel reconciles men to God, but God has taken the initiative, reconciling the world unto himself by Jesus Christ. Then ambassadors for Christ, we, we just finished very briefly. Ambassadors for Christ, we're commissioned by him. We're loyal to him, we represent him. It's all about representing him faithfully. So that when people see you, they know that you're different. They wonder where you've come from. It's because you belong to heaven. You're heaven's ambassador upon earth. Your home is like the embassy of heaven upon earth. We represent him. 
And then finally, we're workers together with Christ. You'll know some of the young Christians, I would say to you, please notice that sometimes the chapter divisions are not in the best place. They were not part of the inspired original writing of Scripture. They're very useful. We find them useful and helpful. They were introduced hundreds of years later. Sometimes they're not in the very best place, as at the end of chapter 5, going on to chapter 6. Paul is continuing his argument. He says, we then, on the basis of all he has said us, we're workers together with him. We'll have to leave it there. But you see, I hope you, you will remember the four diamond the cluster, will you? A new creation in Christ. Reconciled by Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. And workers together with Christ. Now it's time to go to Botswana. How would you get there? Do you know where it is? I hope you do. But if you don't, let me tell you where it is. It's right in the center of southern Africa. Southern Africa, not South Africa. South Africa is a country. But southern Africa is about this shape and right in the center is a large country bigger than France called Botswana. And 80% of it at least is desert, the Kalahari Desert, the Bushman. Some of you will have heard of the Bushman of the Kalahari Desert. We are a thousand miles from the sea. My idea of an ideal holiday is to walk along a beach by the sea. We're a thousand miles away. We're plenty of sand, but the sea's long distant. And we love just sometimes to be able to walk along the seashore and get the smell of the, the sea and the breeze and the, the ozone, if you like, that lovely experience of being beside the sea. We're a thousand miles away from the sea. We're completely landlocked with Angola and Zambia and Zimbabwe, South Africa, and Namibia. We're right in the center there of a troubled, a troubled region. But we thank the Lord for the stability and the peace and liberty we have enjoyed in Botswana since we became independent 51 years ago. We don't use dollars. We use pula. Somebody says, what does pula mean? Pula means rain. You know what we were saying tonight? We love that stuff. Last year we had a drought. The Habaroni, the capital of Botswana is Habaroni. The Habaroni Dam was at 1.7%, just mud. The shops ran out of bottled water. The hardware stores ran out of water tankers. We were in a very severe drought. This year, God blessed us with good rains. And the Habaroni Dam overflowed for the first time in 16 years. We love Pula. Our money is called Pula. And when the president speaks to the nation, he ends his speech. He always ends his speech by saying Pula. And all the people say back, Pula. Pula means rain. And that's why our flag is blue. Water or rain. We have two blue bands and then two white bands, one of the few African flags with white in it, and then a black band, and that speaks of racial harmony. Our first president, Sir Soretsi Kama, he married an Englishwoman, a blonde Englishwoman. I remember Lady Kama, Ruth Kama she was. She was Ruth Williams' 
a secretary in London. And so Soretsi Kama married Ruth Williams. She was a blonde. And uh, they loved one another deeply, and they suffered much in the early years of their marriage, and the British treated them abominably. I must say, and I'm British. So we have a good measure of racial harmony in Botswana. Actually, we don't see color. We just don't see it. That's just my brother, my sister. That's how it is. I, I, we don't actually see it. And we're very well received and very well accepted in this country that we call Botswana. It's very dry, very dusty. You know when the preachers come in their nice shiny shoes, they always have a problem in Botswana because they're always cleaning their shoes, those shiny shoes that preachers like to wear. And I remember one preacher from Northern Ireland, we had put down some gravel in our, our driveway, you see, to reduce the dust. He says, oh, that's a great job you've done. He was very happy because there was less dust to brush off. It's a very, very dusty country. Very hot. Extremely hot. I remember some years ago it was reported Haberoni was the hottest place on earth that particular day. And sometimes you really do feel it. But we can be quite cold in winter. We can get freezing. We don't get snow, but we're th over 3,000 feet above sea level, you see. So we're on a plateau high in the center of southern Africa, and our winters can be quite chilly. We were a British protectorate. The British three chiefs went over to see Queen Victoria in the early 1900s to seek protection, or the end of the 1800s. The South Africans were expanding, and these three chiefs, Kamen the Great, Sicheli, and Batuing, went over to London. They were dressed in their suits and their waistcoats and their shirts and ties. And Kamen the Great was a Christian chief, I believe, a true believer, baptized by immersion. He had only one wife. And F.S. Arnott, who was the first assembly missionary, met Kamen the Great in 1882. And when Cameron the Great went over to see Queen Victoria with the other two chiefs, she presented him with a Bible. And in the inside flyleaf of the Bible, it said this, the secret of Kama's greatness, because he was called Kama the Great. The Bible. A true believer, and we're very grateful for Kama the Great. We have a good history in the sense of David Livingstone and David Livingstone's father-in-law, Robert Moffat, they spread the gospel in Botswana. Robert Moffat, a young Scots gardener, age 21, left for Southern Africa. He spent 40 years translating the Bible into our language. So we were the first peoples of Southern Africa, the first to have the whole Bible in our own language. Mary Moffat married David Livingstone. David Livingstone lived for five years in a little place called Kolobeng. I could take you to Kolobeng today. It's not far from Habarone. And there you would see a little mound. That's where David Livingstone's daughter Elizabeth is buried. So these men, these early men, were great men, serving God faithfully and giving us this wonderful heritage. But when Kama and the two chiefs went over to see Queen Victoria, 
She offered protection to that area of the world for all of those years until we became independent in 1966. So we have diamonds and then tourism for all of those, the elephants, the big five. Do you know the big five? The elephant and the lion and the leopard and the water buffalo and the rhino. The tourists come to see the big five and lots of other things as well, giraffes and buck and all that. Uh, tourism is a big earner for us. The language Sichuan, it's so beautiful, but it's difficult to learn. I'm still learning. I think I'll always be learning. It's a pastoral language. It's the language of raising cattle and looking after things in the bush. And when we say the early morning, we have a lovely way of saying it. We can say it this. It's the time when you can just see the cattle horns coming through the mist. So beautiful, so poetic, the cattle horns coming through the mist. That was what we say when we say early morning. We just say the horns of the cattle. That's what it means. Beautiful language, but difficult to learn. But it's absolutely imperative to try and get the language of the people. You don't pick up a language, you've got to learn it. Jim Legg, when we first went to Botswana, Jim and Irene Legg, we joined this dear couple who have been serving there since 1969. They're still there in the village where they first went, the village of Saroe, where they had to more or less teach themselves Sitswana. But when we went there in 1982, when my wife and I arrived, we arrived with a little bundle in our arms. We called her Heather. Our little daughter was about eight weeks old, but they gave her an African name, Situnya. And in Botswana, you were named after your first child. And so I have become the father of Situnya. And I will always be Ra Situnya, the father of Situnya. My wife will always be called Ma Situnya, the mother of the flower, because that's what Situnya means. And that's what our names will be. And when we arrived with a little bundle in our arms in the village of Saroi, we were there to help Jim and Aaron, but also to learn the language. Seven o'clock every morning, Coco. That's what we say when we get to the door. Coco. Jim Legg had arrived for our language lesson. Hey, it's tough learning a, another language. And Sichuan is a very difficult language. I liked French. I did a little bit of Latin, things like that at school. But an African language is completely different. We have about 14 ways of saying of. Of, you know, something of. We have verbal moods and all sorts of different things that you don't find in French or in English. And you've got to learn. And, you know, I think my wife's better than I am at the language. She can talk about the price of eggs. She can talk to people in the street a bit better than I can. But perhaps when she needs a Bible word and has forgotten a Bible word, she'll say, what's the word for reconciliation? Or what's the word for propitiation? And she'll look to me. So we have our weaknesses and we have our strength. But I remember my first gospel message. After three months, Jim Leg coming every morning, and our lesson, and then we had hours of exercises, and then we got a local girl to come to listen to us pronounce the language, because it's not easy uh, to pronounce. And if you get the tone wrong, the word is completely different. For example, if I said to you, dipiri, dipiri, 
spelt the same, basically pronounced the same, but means two different things. I'll say it again. Dipiri, dipiri. Dipiri means secrets. Dipiri means hyenas. So you better get them right because people won't understand. The people will be smiling when you try. When you make these mistakes as you go along, but that's how it is, dipiri. Dip and so we, we, we must try and grasp the language. After three months, I thought it was time to preach my first gospel message in Sitswana. I prepared for hours and hours and hours, wrote it out word for word. It was checked, corrected, checked, recorrected. And when I came to preach it, I remember what it was. It was kinnakoro, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am the door. After hours and hours of preparation, it lasted about five minutes with me reading it, and I was finished. But at least it was a beginning. That's how you've got to start. And it's very humbling. You want to say things. You can't say them. You're sitting in the meeting. You can't hear everything. But it's absolutely vital to speak the language of the people if you're wanting to communicate the gospel. Now, there are. let me rush on. There are six assemblies in the country. The population's only two million because it's very scattered. It's a desert country. And there are six assemblies. Most are quite a distance apart. Our nearest assembly from Khabarone. Khabarone is the capital where we have been working since 1984. After helping Jim and Irene, they're both nurses. We were doing mobile bush clinics. I was in medicine. My wife's a nurse. We helped them in the mobile bush work. I was also called by the hospital in the local hospital when they needed help. When ladies were getting into difficulties in childbirth, they would give me a call. So we were involved in that work as volunteers, and uh, we were glad to be able to help. But we moved down to the capital, Habaroni, in 1984, after spending two lovely years, two years full of learning, learning the culture, learning the language, learning to love the people and how to communicate the gospel to them, we moved to Habaroni in 1984. We knew of three other Christians there, uh, an Indian couple from Kerala, Mr. and Mrs. Thomas, and a local girl, a nurse called Agnes. Now, there had been a little group meeting in the capital, breaking bread, but the people who used their home, they had been transferred, two other sisters had been transferred or gone back to Zimbabwe. There were only three left, and we gathered with those three, and us ourselves making five. By this time, we had another child, a little boy. He was born in the village of Suroe. He picked a very good day to be born. It was the afternoon of the Sunday school prize giving. When little Andrew was born in the village of Saroi, we called him Andrew, and the local people said, no, you've got to call him Kusitsile. What does that mean? It means the chief has come. The chief has come. Call him Kusitsile. The boy has come. The chief has come. And that's his name to this day in Botswana, Kusitsile. So we were in uh, Habaroni now. We were renting a house from the government. We were going to help part-time medical work there in the capital. They gave us a house that we could rent. And the first Lord's Day, we met in our living room. We didn't have a hall at that stage. And there were five of us. And it was very, very sweet. They had been meeting before, but for a year they hadn't managed to meet together, the three of them. 
but the five of us just met to continue remembering the Lord. Very, very sweet. I'll tell you why. Because he was there. The Lord was there. Five of us, but he was there in the midst. And that makes it very, very sweet indeed. So Jim Legg had said to me, when you go down to Haberone Clark, you start as you mean to go on. You see, the way you start something influences the, the tone and the progress of what you're doing. He says, you start as you mean to go on. And I believed that the challenge was to reach out with the gospel in the language of the people. Mr. Thomas, a lovely old brother, he couldn't speak the language, so it was very much up to ourselves in that respect uh, to seek to reach out. Now, we were living in just an ordinary street. So the first week I went round all the doors to all my neighbors. Well, I didn't know them, but I just went round the doors. I said, listen, we're going to teach, preach the word of God in our home Thursday night at 7 o'clock. We would like you to come. And the people of Botswana are very, very polite. Far more polite than the people from Belfast. I can tell you that for a fact. Very polite. Very respectful. And they were very pleased when I told them who I was and why I'd come. And I said, seven o'clock, we'll be preaching the word of God in our home. We hope you'll come. Oh, yes, we'll come. Oh, wonderful, we'll be there. Seven o'clock on Thursday, we put the children down to sleep, arranged just a few chairs in our little living room and a few hymn books, and we sat down, my wife and I, we sat down to wait for the big crowd. Hey, we had a long wait. Ten past seven, and we're looking at the clock and looking at one another. Quarter past seven. And our first gospel meeting, nobody came. I said to Hazel, well, Hazel, I had prepared a gospel message on Romans chapter one. Instead, we'll have a ministry meeting on Romans chapter one. And we sung a hymn, and I prayed, and I stood to minister to my wife on Romans chapter one. And I went over the time. <laughs> yes. And she forgave me. How did you feel? Well, I felt just about this size. But that's not a bad thing, you know. I took encouragement from the words of the Lord to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18 in Corinth. Be not afraid. But speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. How did you pray? Well, I tell you, we started to pray differently. I realized if anything is going to be done here, God is going to have to do it. I can't do it. The next week, it was just a few neighbors. You see, it was just our neighbors. I suppose they wondered, what, who are these people? They don't have a church. He doesn't have a collar. Who are they? But one of the best things we did was have a Sunday school. We invited the children of the street to come to our home. And, well, it wasn't no children. It was 30 children. The first jumping outside the gate waiting to get in. And that just grew and grew and grew until my wife and I had 150 children in our garden.
She went inside with the 50 little ones. I sat outside under some shade cloth, for it was very hot, with a 100 others. <clears throat> you say, how do you get on with a 100 children? Hey, if it was Northern Ireland, you wouldn't. That would be almost be impossible for one person to manage a hundred children because they're so naughty. Oh, not the children of Botswana. They're jumping around 10, 15 minutes before. They're so excited. This is the highlight of their week. And they sit up and they sing. And you know, they sing with natural harmony. Nobody teaches them to harmonize, but they just know it from their childhood. Beautiful harmony. And when they come to learning verses, oh, I tell you, we should never underestimate children, and children of Botswana, children of Africa. That was a very good thing to do, to start to work among the children. How did you get on? Well, we just kept preaching in our home, just to a few neighbors. Kept teaching. Did you see any blessing? Not for two years. Weekend. A week out, just myself, but in the sense that Mr. Thomas, he didn't know the language, he couldn't help in that way. Few neighbors, week in, week out, week in, week out. We had opportunities now to go to the prison. I was working in the clinics. They often read the Word of God at the beginning of the day at the clinics. The opportunities here, opportunities there. Going round the doors on your own, trying to get a few more people to come in. But God has his own way and his own time. And in 1985, God started to bless. The first person who was saved was a prisoner. He was serving five years for having killed an old lady in his village one night. He was drunk. And he saw this old lady coming through the darkness. He thought she was a witch and he beat her so severely she died. He was serving five years. And when he professed to be saved, I was going to the prison every week. In fact, three times a week. Going to sometimes maximum security, sometimes to the women's prison. And then he was in what was called the boys' prison. But they were all men. I remember once seeing a list of the crimes that they'd committed. And I wondered, am I wise going in here at all? They call it the boys' prison. But these were men who'd committed serious crimes. And the prison officer said when they heard he'd said he was now a Christian, he had, he had been saved and trusted the Lord Jesus. They said, oh, we've heard all that before. They always say that. They hope that they'll get their sentence reduced, you see. And they'll get out early. It won't last well, I don't know, but what he got in 1985 has lasted until now. And he's one of my best friends. We have been through the ups and downs of life together. And he's a respected elder in the assembly in Khabarone. God's grace, God's power, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to change lives. He's had many tragedies and difficulties in his life, and still he goes on, my dear friend, Oh, that was one of the first fruit. And then a few were saved and a few others. Not many. Then we had our first baptisms. We had to use a swimming, somebody's portable swimming pool because we still had in the hall. Then we built our first hall. And slowly, 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 a few saved. But when the children get saved, you see, they bring their mothers, not their fathers. Many of them don't know their fathers, but usually they bring their mothers. And then mothers were getting saved. Homes were being transformed. And slowly, slowly, gradually, slowly but surely, uh, the work expanded in Habaroni. Now we have two halls. 
we have about uh, some Lord's Days that can be 80 or more breaking bread. We have 13 Sunday schools with over a 1,000 children hearing the Word of God every week. Now, we're just one of six assemblies in Botswana. Not all of them have so many Sunday schools. Not all of them are so big. Uh, but there are now today six assemblies. Jim and Irene are still in Saroe. Colin and Christine Rygott are now in Palape. There's another brother from England. He married a local sister. Uh, they, John Bandy and his wife are up in Francistown, which is about 270 miles away. There's a Zambian brother working in Maun, which is another assembly 600 miles away from us. And then there's a little assembly in a mining town called Salibi Pique. And there were people from overseas helping that work. They're now back in UK, and there's just two young brethren trying to keep that work together and go on. So that's a week. We all feel weak, actually. We all feel weak. Because Botswana, the people move around the country very much, and we are larger sometimes because the students come down to study and we benefit, but their home assembly feels the loss. And we are very happy when the students finish and can manage to get back to their home villages. But the problem is now there's no work. There's very little work, you see. And uh, there are people coming out of university with no jobs, and then they tend to try to go to the city to look for work. So urbanization, as we call it, is at 58% at the moment. 58% of the population of Botswana, which was a rural population, a cattle-raising population, and now 58% are in the two cities and the towns. And that's happening, you know, people moving in, like from the countryside into New York, as has happened for many men. That's the idea, looking for work, looking for opportunities for employment. But today there are six assemblies, and we can't boast that we are strong, and we can't boast of anything but just be thankful and glorify the Lord for his grace in raising up these six assemblies. These children that we have, 13 Sunday schools, in Haberoni area. Uh, we call them, we're Irish, you see, so we sometimes talk strange things. We have uh, three Monday Sunday schools. Does it make sense? Three Monday Sunday schools. We have two Tuesday Sunday schools. We have a Wednesday Sunday school. We have a Thursday Sunday school in our garden. Now we live, Hazel and I live, in the village of Klokweng on the outskirts of Haberoni. We have a Sunday school in our garden. We have another Sunday school in the village where we live. So every week, and that's just in Habaroni, over 1,000 boys and girls are hearing the Word of God. Absolutely wonderful. The ladies have to begin in January to prepare the 1,500 prizes for the children in the, at the end of the year. They have to work all through the year getting ready for the prize givings. So we're thankful. It could change. But today we have great liberty uh, to reach out to these lovely children. One girl I remember was in Hazel's class. Her name was Caroline. She came from Uganda. She was part of a big family. Her parents were staunch Roman Catholics. Caroline came from Uganda. One year in Sunday school, she learned about three or four chapters of Scripture. And my wife said to her, I don't know what I'll give you next. Maybe Psalm 119. Caroline says, I'll learn it. I hope you know Psalm 119 is the longest chapter 
in the Bible, 176 verses. And they're all quite similar about the Word of God and His precepts and His statutes. And Caroline learned it. I could, I have never learned it. When she came to say it, she said it without one mistake. Isn't it wonderful when you sow the seed of the Word of God? Now, she wasn't saved when she was with us, but she moved to Swaziland. Her father was a lecturer in the university. The whole family moved to Swaziland, which is in South Africa. And one night she came on the phone to my wife in tears. She says, I've been reading my Bible. I'm reading in the book of Revelation. I don't understand it all, but I can see that judgment is coming and I'm not ready. And that night over the phone to the dear Caroline in Swaziland, she was pointed to the Savior and she trusted him. You see, you sow the seed and sometimes it's years later, especially with children. Hey, there will, there's going to be many surprises in heaven, you know. One day you'll be walking down the streets of heaven, if I could put it like this, and somebody will come up to you and say, do you remember me? Or oh, perhaps you don't. I was in your Sunday school class. I was the wee boy that gave you all the trouble. And I didn't get saved then, but years later, God used what you had taught me to my salvation. Thank you for teaching me in Sunday school. Or someone might say, you don't know me, but I know you. You once gave me a tract. And I didn't read it then, but a little while later, I was troubled and I began to read it and God used that to my salvation. Thank you for giving me that tract. Heaven will be full of surprises, I have no doubt. His word will not return unto him void. So we started to see people being saved. And then you've got to teach them the Word of God. And this, there was very little literature in the language to help younger people, perhaps, who are not so good in English. We mostly do our gospel work in the language of the people, even to this day. But we, over the years, have written and translated uh, literature, Bible dictionary, introduction to the Old Testament, introduction to the New Testament, little book about baptism, a little book about the Lord's Supper, a little book about the assembly, to help these dear folks who don't know English and just have their own language. You've got to teach them. New believers, we often meet in their own homes and just sit down with them and go over some very important things very early in their Christian experience at home. We see how they are at home and how the family relates to them. We see their home circumstances. We get to know where they live. That's all very, very important. And we try to encourage them. We start with assurance of salvation. Reading your Bible, God speaks to you. Praying, you speak to God. Witnessing, telling others about the Lord Jesus. Everyone should be a missionary, you know. And so this is what we do with new believers. But then that is only complementing the teaching meetings in the assembly, which we have two every week. We have four gospel meetings and two teaching meetings. We have two halls and we have only one assembly, but we use two halls. And we have gospel meetings in both halls. We have an open air every week. And we seek to teach the Word of God uh, twice a week 
to these new believers. It's very important to make them strong in the things of God. And then we have conferences and we cook using big, big pots. You know the big cast iron pots? That's how we cook for conference time. It's absolutely delicious. When you put Botswana beef, we raise cattle. We have good cattle, even in the desert. They seem to do all right. We export beef to the EEC, and we just put in the beef, and the ladies cook it. And then they call for the men, and then the men come, and they take a big stick, and they go... Beating the meat, the beef against the side of the pot so it comes out like, I suppose they would call it today, pulled beef, you know, pulled pork, pulled beef, pulled beef, and it's absolutely delicious. We call it sesoir. And during our weddings and special occasions, we all love to share in the sesoir, Botswana beef. We have a great time at conference. Usually in Haberoni we have uh, many visitors and we try to put them in our own homes. The young folks sleep in the hall. Uh, the older folk we try to accommodate. And we, over the three days we have some of the men that you've had for your conferences. Uh, some of those dear men have visited us. Mr. Hay, Mr. Grant, uh, Mr. Gilliland. They've all come out to Botswana uh, to help us from time to time at conference. And they speak by inter interpretation, of course. So, but we're very glad to see them. So there's preaching the Word of God every week, Sunday schools, gospel meetings, teaching the Word of God personally and in the assembly, writing literature that helps the having conferences to encourage, to build, to help, to teach these lovely believers. And then finally, as I was saying the other day uh, in uh, Newington, that's not enough in an assembly. That's just not enough. Meetings, preaching, so very important. Teaching, so very important. But there's something else, and that is a ministry of caring, loving, being kind, supporting, encouraging one another. These are dark and difficult days. Many people have problems. And we are to bear one another's burdens. So you need that love. The love of Christ constrains me. When you're preaching, preach with a heart overflowing with love. When you're teaching and trying to explain sometimes more difficult things, seek to do it with a heart of love. But when you're caring, make sure you're expressing the love of Christ. It has been poured into us to flow out of us. And we're to encourage and help and love. What did the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it so clear and plain that anyone should doubt it? He says, listen, I want you to love one another. So I say to the young Christians in Midland Park, love those older friends. Those older believers, you love them, you care for them, you try to encourage them. I say to the older believers, you love those younger ones. It's the word of God. I'm just passing on what Christ has said, that we love one another, help one another. And when you get the energy of youth and the maturity of older believers and you put that together, that's a powerful combination. That's how it was meant to be. 
caring. We have many widows in the assembly. We have those who have passed through dark experiences. And I haven't time to tell you about that, but all oh, the importance of love. 1 Corinthians 13. Without it, you're just making a lot of noise. You're just going through the motions. Without genuine love, you're a hypocrite. So the, Lord, the Lord was very hard on hypocrites. If he was hard on anyone, it was those Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. Let's be what we are. Let's truly represent the one who loved us and gave everything for us. May God help us in Midland Park, in Botswana, in Khabarone, to serve him out of hearts overflowing with love. Now shall we pray?